Assalamu alaikum everyone. Thank you for joining me on this brand new episode of the Mindful Muslim podcast where I will be speaking to Aisha Khalil. I hope you find this a really beneficial conversation inshallah. joining me on the Inspirited oh, Mind so. podcast. How are you doing? Alhamdulillah, I'm good. How are you? Good, fantastic. Um, really pleased to have you as our as our next guest on the podcast. Um, I suppose that a, a starting point is just to introduce yourself, um, however way you see mm-hmm. fit really, to our listeners and our viewers as well. Go ahead. Um, oh, it's always an awkward one, isn't it? <laughs> um, I um somebody who I wouldn't say I'm a professional in the field but I would say that I'm somebody who has a lot of lived experience of mental health uh, and mental health issues and that has been sort of actually supplemented by education and some of the things I've done over the years um so I have a diagnosis of BPD, probably PTSD. I mean, the two are linked. Um, I was diagnosed with clinical depression when I was 14. And there's been a myriad of other things along the years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm 30 years old now. I graduated with my bachelor's in psychology at 21. And I've been working ever since in various fields. Um, And I guess through lived experience, mental health and sort of trauma and the various conditions have always been interesting to me. Mm. Um, It's been an area that I feel quite passionate about and I wanted to take that further. I almost, I, I wanted to use what I've experienced to help other people. And so that shaped reaching out to you guys and being familiar with your work. And I also then volunteered for about a year with The Listening Place, which is a charity in London and they do fantastic work. Um, I mean, I'm familiar with Samaritans and and other organizations, but I think what makes them so special is you have an ongoing relationship um, with who you speak to. Mm. So, So yeah, that's in a nutshell where I'm at. I'm not currently working in the mental health field. but I guess where there's the personal aspect of having a diagnosis, it's still relevant. It's always relevant to my life on a, on a day-to-day basis anyway. Um, so yeah, that's, Amazing. that's me. <laughs> Great. No, thank you so much. For that. Um, that was quite a lot of things there that I'd love to explore with you um, a little bit more. So um, yeah. I guess the first thing was you mentioned um, more than a couple of actual uh difficulties with with mental health mental well-being yeah. you've had before you also mentioned a diagnosis and um, yeah for those of those of us that are that are not familiar with bpd can you explain that yeah. a little bit further how it came about maybe maybe symptoms all of that stuff oh yeah um so it's it's quite it's it's so heavy the diagnosis in itself um so i i want to make it clear for starters, like you said, so it's not actually bipolar. Mm. So a lot of people, um, when they hear BPD, the automatic assumption is bipolar disorder. And there are similarities between the two, um, but I am referring to borderline personality disorder when I say BPD. Um, So I kind of had a feeling before my diagnosis. Um, So it's linked to trauma. Um, and I come from a trauma background as a child, um, which obviously I can I can expand on that. But 
in a nutshell, I got married when I was 21 and completely not healed from anything. Nothing was addressed. And I think that's very, very prominent in sort of certain communities, especially South Asian community or in, in, a, in a lot of the Muslim community. Things happen to families, to people, and it's kind of just, it's done now. You get on with it. Like nothing's actually addressed or put into place to heal from what's happened. It's kind of swept under the rug or you just think you're fine. So I just thought it's really bizarre because looking back, I really wasn't Mm. in a place to Mm. get married. Um, But I was married and that's when, so borderline personality disorder has a huge, um, it's around relationships. So I'd think how there's a lot of different conditions kind of have characteristics to them. So borderline personality disorder really has its basis in relationships, your social interactions, how you feel about other people, how you feel about yourself in relationships. And it came to the forefront in a huge way. Um, And I started to realize that's when it was undeniably obvious to me that something's not right here um and and it was it was pretty chaotic and I feel um I feel a lot for my ex-husband at that point because it was it was a lot to handle for both of us and um that's when I kind of had an inkling and I remember I I randomly came across like a YouTube video of people describing borderline personality disorder and it was kind of talking about how they felt and I was and there was this shock moment where I was like they're describing me (laughs) they're describing what I go through Mm -hmm. um and so I started with a counsellor and so that's another thing like yes I got counselling but it's really important I would say to anybody who thinks that they're feeling in a way that's not right mm. to to just go and find out there's nothing wrong with doing that yeah. it's it will make the process like now I wish that I had done that so much earlier mm. um just to have gone and I mean I knew what I was dealing with at that point and I think some of that is because of my psychology background yeah um but it was maybe after a couple of years that I just I went and saw a psychologist and I I remember saying to him I'm about 99% sure of what I have but I'll tell you what I've experienced and you can give me the official diagnosis and so at 27 I knew at around 23 but I didn't get my official diagnosis until about 27 26 so it was quite a while after Mm. um I could give you a run through of the symptoms but there's there's quite a lot there's quite a few Mm. um and it tends to be comorbid with things like Mm -hmm. substance abuse or or depression or eating disorders so I think that can add to the mix of the diagnosis where people might outwardly present as you know maybe anorexic Mm. but but the underlying issue is the symptoms of borderline personality disorder and they're trying to cope with it through anorexia or substance abuse or or whatever it may be Mm. um and was this the case for you in terms of there was um that was an underlying thing for you um I think depression, I think I thought I was dealing with depression for a long time. Yeah. Um, And, and I thought it was my, and I remember when I was married, I thought it was my relationship. Mm. I mean, it compounded it, Mm. but I thought it was what the people around me were doing. Right. So one of the things is like fear of abandonment 
and growing up in a chaotic household mm. uh, my mum coped with it by going out a lot mm. to sort of get away and and so I didn't have like a I understand it but to a child I understand it as an adult mm. but children and the way your your mind develops at age, they don't understand why that's happening um so I would get really really worked up and anxious if he had like planned to go away and like say he would go away till about 6 p.m in my mind he's told me 6 p.m and it runs over to like 9 or 10 that that was an issue that would I would start getting anxious especially if I couldn't get in touch and so to me it was like oh he's gone out late again blah, blah, blah. yeah maybe there could be better communication but mm. it's it was it was my stuff making me react to a situation in either you know a, a an out proportionate way or you know like they call it People would say triggers, right? In in, in psych, psychology speak, would say you, that was a triggering event for you. Mm. Um, so I was getting triggered, we can say, by situations around me constantly. Mm. Um, and so to me, it wasn't my stuff. It was, oh, they've done this or he's done this. So it wasn't very obvious to me straight away. Yeah. What other situations do you think you could mention that, so this... Uh, example that you just gave us you kind of um clearly said you think it stemmed from this particular things that happened in your childhood so what were there yeah. other things that you discovered either by yourself or with a with a counselor that you kind of explored and realized oh this stems from something else was there any other uh things that you can recall um sorry do you mean like symptoms so other or, symptoms or triggers. So, so you just mentioned right. one. You said it stemmed from, uh, mm -hmm. you know, your your mother going out a lot. Were yeah. there others that you realised? Um. Yeah, I think definitely, definitely, so many. There's probably so many. Um, I would say a huge one has been. Um. I don't mean to make it a relationship talk, but it's. Mm it is so predominant in that area of my life. Mm -hmm. um, I think when I, when I was married or when I've, when I've looked for someone to get married to, and I think a lot of women and men can relate to this, your childhood shapes that massively, mm. whether we like to admit it or not on a level. So I think I've in the past accepted behavior or ignored red flags um, and that's come from seeing what my mum has accepted or or you know tolerated in her marriage and and how she's been how she was treated or not treated and and you you might so I was having a discussion just yesterday I was saying um, we may intellectually understand in a situation that you may understand I shouldn't be being treated this way or this isn't respectful behavior or whatever the situation is but for some reason you're still tolerating it or for some reason that woman that sister might still be in that marriage or and that's because it's so much deeper than just intellectually knowing it's it, it's there's there's this entire subconscious element to it from your childhood and unless you've really taken the time to look at that and understand that and and heal that you're going to keep repeating it or or accepting it and one part of your brain is going to be telling you intellectually this is wrong why am i doing this why am i accepting this mm. and you're still there it's it, it, it's it's fascinating Mm. how it works but I would say that's another one that's probably a huge one yeah um, and I'm interested to know what the diagnosis kind of was like for you what it felt like to get that diagnosis um and when that was in, in your life in in your relationship 
relationships at the time, not not just your marriage? Yeah. Um, so I'd come back to London and I think I was just getting on my feet, um, trying to find work. And I think I was, I think I was in a space where I could make it the most important thing in my life. Mm. And I think mental health really needs to be prior, like it, it needs to be a priority. And I'm, and I'm so glad that we have platforms like this now because I think I came to a point where I realized without mental health, everything else that you're doing is gonna fall apart at some point, either eventually or in a dramatic fashion everything else that you're trying to accomplish if you're not on top of your mental health is eventually going to start to crumble whether that's your your worship your fasting your work your your personal life whatever it is it's going to have an impact on that so I think I was like I really need to buckle down and and get on top of this and and see and I think I also wanted to start exploring medication Mm -hmm. so I booked the appointment in London um and and went and and got the diagnosis but I think for me it wasn't uh very I know some people can get quite upset um hearing that they you know have a label now to which essentially it doesn't sound great um (laughs) a personality disorder doesn't sound great but I think for me because I knew for so long it was actually quite validating Mm. to put a name to be to have someone say yes this is what you're dealing with yeah. And it does look and experience how you think and also to feel less alone mm. in the sense that other people have experienced what I've experienced. And then I could get on with looking at, well, what's going to help. Mm. Right. Um, and what's it like, I guess, a few years on and, and living with BPD um, and I guess your experience now? um it's 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 bumpy in honestly it's still bumpy and and I and it's really interesting with this podcast because I almost felt like can I speak on this if I'm not completely healed or or doing completely well you know and, and how can I speak on this subject if I'm not 100%? And then I thought, that's the point, though. That's the point. The point is to have an honest dialogue about how, about what it's like. And, and that's the thing with mental health conditions. It's not, you know, even people without, let's say, a label, quote, unquote, mm. mentally healthy individuals are not going to be 100% or their life is not going to be 100 percent they're not always going to be you know one in four that's a huge number so now I'm I'm much better there's things now that I don't I mean on the huge positive side I don't think I would meet the criteria Mm -hmm. um I think now I would be actually considered having just traits Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one thing with borderline personality disorder because it's a lot of like behavioral it's more behavioral than let's say bipolar disorders um, a chemical imbalance Mm. in the brain so that's something you pretty much would be on medication for for your whole life Mm. whereas things like borderline personality disorder you can kind of unlearn a lot of the behaviors that would make you fit the criteria for it Mm. so I'm much better in the sense of you know there's a lot of people who um like I work full-time I got promoted this year I um you know hold down stable work I have my responsibilities I have stable family relationships stable friendships all of that that I think you wouldn't actually be able to tell if somebody you know met me Mm. um so it's much better 
But then on the same, on the flip side, I have my relapses. I have my days. I still have, I still struggle with depression. That's, that's a huge thing. And I, and I also think um, it comes out. I mean, it's so individual. So I think for me, it comes out a lot more inwardly. I, I do tend to hide a lot of my struggles. So outwardly, you know, I'm, I'm doing all these things, you know, that every responsible adult would be doing or, or healthy adult is doing. But I still have those inward struggles. Mm. And so that's where it's like, I'm much better. Mm. Um, but I also think over the years, once you become familiar with what you have, you also know how to kind of snap out of things a lot quicker. Mm. So that's a huge blessing in the sense that I can call myself out on things quicker and, and get out of ruts quicker than I used to be able to. Yeah. Yeah. I think that leads quite nicely onto my next question about just what's the biggest challenge for for somebody that has had a diagnosis of BPD or um yeah and and I guess it would be good to hear you compare before the diagnosis what was the biggest challenge for you and then maybe after the diagnosis once you started as you say working out some things and working on some things um Mm -hmm. yeah um that's a really good question. Mm-hmm. So, so what were my challenges prior mm. compared to now? Mm. Um, were the big ones that really stand out? I mean, was it like uh, did yeah. it, was it within your relationship? Was that the the big thing, or were there other things that stood out to you? Yeah, I think now. I can see, I can separate what, what's realistic externally mm. and what's my brain's interpretation. That's amazing. And yeah, that, and that was difficult. That was difficult to do. Mm. And I think some people even without the diagnosis can't always do that because people don't tend to self-examine. Right. No, I mean, not everyone. Some people are very self-reflective and, and, you know, especially during this month. But I think for me before, you know, if somebody said something a certain way, it could be a family member, a friend, anyone. And I took it as, you know, it was said sarcastically or, or they were being dismissive that in my brain, it was fact then. Or being and I would just roll or- with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would then be angry or upset or whatever, or fly off the handle. Anger was a thing for me. Mm. That was, I recall breaking a lot of things growing up. Mm. Um, so now, yeah. So definitely after, after you know, therapy, reading books, mm. it's not that I, I don't take things the wrong way, but I now have the capacity to to be like no let's see what's really going on let's let's take a look at what this person said and how they may have actually meant it Mm. and I have that space now to sit and nine times out of ten it's not what my initial gut reaction Mm. was telling me um which is yeah it's difficult but it's it's such a relief because then you can act <laughs> yeah. yeah it's it's so much it makes your relationships it's made my relationships a lot smoother mm, can imagine um the other thing I want to know is just about stigma and and if there was any of that for you within your family or other people you know in your life yeah so, so I think BPD or otherwise because you mentioned uh when you were a teenager you were diagnosed with depression right yeah Mm, so all of that kind of stuff I mean what was what was that like um yeah I mean so my mum's like I mean we're close but being a Pakistani and and born there woman she you know mental health is not especially in their generation is just not considered so 
I had that diagnosis and and she didn't really do anything about it and it's not I don't have resentment for that it's just how they you know for them it's just like what do you what do you mean Mm. what's that you know it just wasn't and especially in a teenager Mm. it just wasn't taken I mean her views over the years she's grown as I've grown Mm. she understands it so much more now and it's probably through seeing me and just through seeing in other people in our lives has completely changed and you know she knows it's actually a thing but so I wouldn't say that was so much stick I mean that may tie into stigma in some ways in our in our community um I think that I think I feel it on a more subtle level in the sense that I don't talk about my diagnosis Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. usually like I wouldn't tell people because then you have this fear of how would you know how are they going to perceive me now or or what do they think of me now now that's with you that's not something that you no yeah that's that's still with me yeah and, and I think it might be because it might also be because I feel like I'm doing better that I don't want to add that and people have you know this people mm. have an, an image of somebody who's like really unstable and you know like I mean I understand I understand when people are that way but you know I think they would assume that I'm something else now they'll paint me differently as opposed to just seeing me for who I am yeah. once I say that yeah. so I just don't tell people yeah I mean there's I mean be- my close friends but there's going to be connotations like you say and things that come mm-hmm. with you stating any kind of um you know mental health difficulty and it's just maybe you're trying to save yourself and them that trouble when there's no yeah. you know what I mean no need to kind yeah. of um, conjure those things up unnecessarily um yeah as you say if it's somebody close to you and they just know you really well it's it's a different situation yeah I mean I'm not happy with that I'm not um, you know and and I maybe we don't give each other enough credit like I feel like if somebody came to me and mm-hmm. said you know I struggle with x y and z I would actually feel quite honored that somebody felt that they could share that with me absolutely um but I guess not everyone, you know, Yeah. you don't know. I mean, this leads really nicely on to how you think we either within our own families or within our extended networks or as a community, how can we think about um, changing that stigma really? How can we kind of begin to destigmatize mental illness? It's so such a loaded question yeah do you think it's just time I mean because you know we talk about generations and how it was just different for them and yeah Mm. I think stuff like what you guys do Mm. like this podcast and and you taking the time out to do this and talk about it like I've seen it over the last few years and this is what we need more of this and that's why I'm so glad to be doing this but this is what we need we just need people to speak talking about it Mm, mm, mm. yeah I don't think we need huge and I I think we need that acknowledgement I think our scholars need to be doing more of it Mm. bringing it up in you know like Hamza they they cover a lot of things and they're also getting better in covering things but it's like Mm. you know the amount of people you know of, of friends that I've had who you know will say I know Islamically says this about parents but then they're, they're in traumatic they're in they're facing traumatic situations in regards to their parents and they don't know how to can re- I can see the conflict in the conversation I can hear the conflict between this is what my religion says mm-hmm. but this is what I'm facing and no one's putting the two together yeah. and I think I mean, there is more of that. I'm starting to see more of that. They, there are scholars addressing it and talking about it. But I think we need, we need more of that. I yeah. think we need to just be, whether it's between friends or whether it's charities and platforms like this, whether it's in a mosque, we just need people bringing it to light more and, and saying, hey, this is what I go through. This is what I have. Or, yes. you know, 
and I if think, you know someone who mm, yeah I think also when it comes to the Islamic aspect that you mentioned um it's about I think just understanding just more about the Quran in depth and yeah. and, and, and the interpretations and yeah. some of which I feel you know some people will use to either maintain their power or be yeah. whatever over their children or have something over mm -hmm. their children or their spouse or whoever it may be and they might twist things this is mm -hmm. not kind of unheard of and um, you know we all mm -hmm. know about these mm -hmm. things so i think it is um you know goes hand in hand with education and, and research and mm -hmm. trying to really deeply understand the quran and yeah. and just i think look at it with a lens of absolute fairness you know it's yeah. not some it's not it's not one it's not a, a scripture that that gives i don't know you know somebody else power or, or privilege over somebody yeah. else and yeah. i think that's a real kind of misconception and, and people try to use that to their own advantage sadly really yeah. actually very dire consequences sometimes yeah yeah and and it's and it's and it's, alhamdulillah, that there are different situations told to us. Mm. And, I, and I don't want to sound like somebody who's, mm. you know, got that level of being able to interpret it for other people. But, mm. you know, I've had friends with abusive parents and, you know, they, they feel like, oh, you know, almost guilty yeah. for being in that situation. And I and I'm and I'm turning around and I'm like, there's you know, Prophet Ibrahim, and there's and there's all these situations where not everyone got along with their family or their parents, and there's and there's a reason we were given these different scenarios because the same situation. I think we try to sort of paint like a universal picture of of a family unit, For and. Sure you know, uh, especially with the parent-child dynamic, especially with that. And I think there's this thing of, you know, trying to make us all feel like our relationship should be this particular way. But if you actually look at the different prophets, all of their family situations were different. The dynamics were completely different. And, and, that, and without even going into too much detail, that, that already tells you that it depends on your situation and I think that's where like you said there needs to be more education around you know applying it fairly and applying it in context yes absolutely I mean um I'm sure m many people listening or watching might have children or or, or um, mm. they themselves may have gone to some sort of um I don't know, Islamic schooling when they were younger, or they may, might have gone to the local mosque and these stories they would be familiar with. It's really yeah. interesting that, um, you know, the lenses that we look at them from, perhaps there should be a time where if we're still, you know, studying the book, then um, there's just scope to go a little bit deeper. So it's not just a story mm -hmm. that we tell our children, but there's these learnings that you mentioned, these teachings mm -hmm. that really mm -hmm. need to be focused on. They're not just you know, something that we want our children to know, you know, about the prophets, but actually yeah. how can they apply those things to their own lives? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I think those kind of takeaways from the stories that we, you know, either read ourselves or we tell our children, we should be really yeah. thinking about how can we apply this in our own lives? How is it relevant to us? Because all of yeah. it is relevant, but it's that, I yeah. think, I, I think a lot of us just miss that aspect. We think, um, I mean, alhamdulillah, there's so much reward in learning about the Quran and, you know, reading the prophets about their lives and everything. But mm -hmm. I think that key thing at the end is maybe sometimes missed where, um, you know, we need to have takeaways for our own lives. Yeah. Um, I guess my next question for you is... Um, just a little bit more about your recovery so you mentioned you're in recovery from bpd if we can put it that way um yeah. and whether there's kind of more that you want to share about that maybe um you already mentioned about how you kind of notice things within yourself a little bit earlier and sort of mm -hmm. um yes i guess have that internal dialogue 
um, and, yeah. and realize more what's what's realistic and what's kind of what's other things in your mind so yeah. um, there are other kind of techniques or, or things that you use now that um, have been really helpful to you because I'm sure uh, you know for, even for people that don't have a, a diagnosis or whatever it might be there might be certain situations I'm sure that you've you've just mentioned that are um, common to a lot of people even if they don't mm -hmm. have a particular diagnosis or particular traits mm -hmm. um, therapy <laughs> if I could account for for one thing the thing that I feel like people just don't do enough of yeah and it's so life-changing diagnosis or not I feel like so I don't even think you need a reason to do it it's just the you access know? for me I don't know yeah. how I feel about that but it's going out and either finding somebody that, that um uh works with you and and um you know you feel comfortable with them but then mm -hmm. also just you know is is there some monetary situation to it can you access something that's affordable for you etc cetera, etc cetera. I don't know if you yeah. think um that's sort of their excuses or whatever like how do you feel about that yeah I mean that I, I mean not everyone I understand but I remember when I was working in, in a job way less than what I'm making now and and I had to make that sacrifice because I because like you said uh, like I was saying earlier as well mental health without that if I didn't get that together, mm. everything else is not gonna, it's not gonna work. So I had to make that sacrifice. Like, yes, I could use, people are okay. A lot of people are okay with using money on other things, mm. but, th but this is you. It's a very good point. If you're not okay, it doesn't matter what else you're buying or, or not buying. Like, I understand it can be pricey. There are different prices. There's things that are online now that will be less. Um, there's things that are free. I mean, listening place is free. Yeah. It is for people who are actively suicidal, yes, mm -hmm. and not everyone is, but there's a lot of resources and I think mm. there are a lot of excuses. And I think there's kind of like a, there has to be something wrong with me to do this. For sure. Or it means there's something wrong with me. <laughs> And, it, and it's not, it's just life is hard as well. Or you could be going through a situation that yeah. you just need an outside perspective on. Absolutely. I love that you said um, you could just go, there doesn't need to be a reason. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I truly believe that. Um, mm. I think it'll, it just gives you that time to reflect and sit down. And as you say, it's an outside person, um, especially if you just find a counselor or a therapist that you are comfortable with I think um there are just benefits all around no no matter if there is something that you know that is that's dramatic that's happened or severe or you're suffering um so yeah absolutely I would I would second that yeah and I and, I, and that's it so you were talking about the recovery process and that's a huge mm -hmm. yeah. that was a huge part of it first in the beginning it was all very it was very raw because it was going over everything that happened to me as a child mm -hmm. and what I saw and experienced and and then um it got a lot more it was a lot more about the present the hard work it's like okay so I would say if we want to talk about the recovery process I would say there's a timeline where in the beginning, it's kind of, you know, for people with trauma, PTSD, um, sort of trauma-based illnesses, um, or even those who have other diagnoses who are chemical imbalance, but then there's trauma caused by that, or, or, you know, you could just be going through a traumatic time. I think the healing recovery process in the beginning is quite raw. You're just literally going over what's happened. You're getting the emotions out of what's happened. Yeah. And then... So that was very much um, the first two, three years. Wow. Um, yeah, I would say from 21 to sort of 23. And then I moved back uh, from about 24 to 26. That's when I, I got the diagnosis. And then that was more kind of like a, okay, kind of got out. I mean, those things, I mean, trauma stays with you, but it was kind of like I got out the raw I'm, I'm much more sort of ex at the stage of acceptance of what happened mm -hmm. and then you kind of get to the stage of like okay well what do I want for myself now mm -hmm. 
so then therapy was looked different at that stage and that's where it was I'm experiencing I would go in with the situation like this is what I'm experiencing at home um maybe you know this is what somebody said and this is how I felt about it and it's like an it was a very analytical breakdown of what's going on inside my heart and head mm. what other people do what you can and can't control boundaries all that kind of stuff um so that's why I would say therapy was so huge because I had somebody who's professionally trained so I was um I would say for anyone who's listening and considering it is to know what so like you said you need to find somebody who's a good fit mm. um but you also need to know what kind of service you need so psychiatrists will be you know if you're considering medication mm. or if you need a diagnosis they can diagnose you mm. and then psychologists will deal with conditions so they're more trained right so something like borderline personality disorder I needed somebody who's got that level of academic knowledge to be able to go through this process with me. Mm. Whereas somebody like if you like a counselor and a therapist is great, mm. but they're sort of more for I would say, say if you're going through a bereavement mm. and you need you just need that. It depends on what sort of level of support you need, you see um so I'm I actually see a psychologist because I needed that level of insight Mm. to tease apart what my mind does automatically from what I've learned Mm. and and push it to a healthier direction um so that was what recovery has been for me massively and then a lot of reading and YouTube has been a good so I would say get books on the subject. I ordered so many. There's workbooks. If anyone has BPD, there's so many workbooks for it. Mm. So if you can't afford therapy, there's books. Mm. Um, and then videos, YouTube videos helped me in the recovery process in the sense of just listening to other people. And and then, so then you feel less alone and you feel like, okay, there's other people. And, and some of them are further. It's great because some of them are further along in the journey than you. So I would read a lot of like, I'm recovered. This is what life is like now. And then it was like, okay, great. So there's like a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, I'm feeling like this right now, but there's people out there who are now doing a living life or don't meet the criteria anymore. Or So that's what it's looked like for me. Mm. And, And now I'm, you know, I'm still in therapy, but I can, it's nice now because there'll be weeks when, one I go less often so it used to be weekly now sometimes it can be once a month so it could just be like touching base um sometimes it'll be fortnightly but but that's the thing if you you don't have to have you don't have to commit to it for your whole life it could just be you know as and when um so yeah that's where I'm at now which is nice it's nice to sometimes have a session and it's just like oh you know nothing's really happened just touching base compared to before um so yeah um my next question is all about faith and how you think your faith if it's played a part in your in your mental health recovery or otherwise um because you all meant you already mentioned um a little bit about guilt or you know certain times where you think you know this is my understanding of my religion and this is actually what I'm going through um so how's how has it been for you in terms of your faith and your experience in mental health I love these questions <laughs> they're really they're really <laughs> good they're really insightful they're really big topics of they're what we need um yes faith has been a huge aspect and a very and probably one of the most confusing for me Mm. um not because of the faith but because of my presentation of my illness and and like you were saying where if we're not because we're not talking about it as much Mm. 
for example, I've only ever read about one or two other Muslims who also have borderline personality disorder. That's it. <laughs> I don't know anyone else who does. So I don't have, I, I have, I, I know a lot of non-Muslims or I've spoken to or read about or, you know, met up with in the recovery process, but, or, or I've met someone or I've met those who, because maybe because of the presentation, they're not as, they're not religious anymore. And that's really sad to me because it's really bizarre how it's worked for me because it's it, it helps and then I struggle with my faith in the sense that I don't feel like I I hold up or I feel like I miss the mark and I feel like I'm not then I feel like I'm not doing well and then I'll say um like I'm not a good Muslim and I'm not good enough for it or, or, or I'm a hypocrite because I'm not meeting these standards and I'm doing things that I shouldn't be doing. And I'm, and those will be like coping strategies or it will be a relapse. And then I find it hard to be compassionate to myself and, and, you know, accept it as, well, it's something you're struggling with because then I feel like I'm giving myself a pass. So you can hear already that that's all very complicated. That's all, that is a massive presentation for me. But then at the same time, so how faith came into it, I was actually agnostic in uni. So I didn't grow up religious. Our house was too chaotic. Mm. So faith wasn't really taught to me other than going to the mosque and learning Arabic, which I didn't understand, which a lot of us did. Mm. So I knew how to read it and that was it. Um, I didn't know the stories I didn't you know of the prophets I didn't I didn't learn about the prophets I didn't know him mm. so and I grew up in an English culture and then I moved to London when I was about 18 and I decided one day and it was a very much like an anger reaction I remember the day that I decided I was agnostic because I just thought it's fun. It's crazy because I remember looking up at the sky. I was going into uni, and I just thought, "Well, you know, I believe that there's God, but all of this happened to me, and all this family stuff. Or I had all these family problems. Like, how could you know? There was that kind of like, how could you think? Mm. And so I um, decided I was agnostic, and I kind of was just living my life. And I um, I was looking into faith. And I, and I wanted to make sure that if I was going to dedicate myself to a faith, I wanted to make sure it was the right one. And so at 21, after a couple of years of studying, I became, I would say that, I almost would say like I'm kind of like a revert. I was born a Muslim, but I, would kind, I kind of feel like I was a revert mm-hmm. in that sense that that's when I really learned and that's when I really was like this is who I am mm. and and I wanted to make sure that I was Muslim because I want that that's what I believed was right not because that's what my parents are mm. or by name or whatever For sure. you know um so I was I went into the studies with whichever faith felt right to me is what I'm gonna go for whether that was Christianity whether whatever it was gonna be yes it might upset my family or or whatever the situation but so yeah I actually came into it that way and I was really I had the revert high which people talk about and and so faith has been was has been a massive supporting factor for me because which I mean studies show that Mm. study like psychology studies show even with BPD I think it was in Iran maybe I'll try and share the link but they did a study about spirituality and religion in BPD and it showed an improvement in symptoms so I mean the evidence is there Mm. and I it's comfort 
workspace is comfort and I also feel like the the restriction people call them restrictions but you know alhamdulillah we don't drink so I might go through what I go through but I don't have to then struggle with alcohol addiction on top of that or substance abuse you know I I know I know Muslims with mental health issues who have coped by drinking you know um, so it's not like it's a free but for me it's been protective factor in the sense that I could probably I would probably be a lot worse or have to deal with other things if I didn't have faith kind of almost tamed tamed the worst of it and it, and it's a resource I think that's what my therapist called me it's a resource for me that when I'm feeling low I can turn to it and I feel like I have someone there for me even when I'm failing I mean there's the, the flip side of it is obviously kind of what I was talking about in the sense of the, there can be guilt or I can feel like you know other people don't understand Mm. my coping strategies aren't always the best mm-hmm. and and they're in conflict with with my religion and then I feel there's a spiral to that um so yeah it plays a huge part in both ways I think um a big takeaway from me from what you just mentioned about faith is that self-compassion I just think it's yeah. so so essential and without it for kind of any aspect of our lives it's very very tricky to be I think just to be comfortable with yourself and be at peace unless Mm -hmm. you have that certain level of compassion that everybody needs to have for themselves you know in every aspect of their lives particularly religion and 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 how you are able or not able to practice it really um and I guess the way that you view yourself and your own feelings surrounding all of that um yeah yeah. Um, you also mentioned coping methods and, and strategies. So are there any that you'd say are kind of a must do for you or or friends or other people that you've heard of that they kind of have these um, self-care practices or coping methods that are just their, you know, their holy grail sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. So from one of my friends who has, a, a, I won't say the condition, but sleep. Sounds like such a minor thing, but having a good amount of sleep, stable sleep, yeah. 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 Like my mood will be so much more difficult to manage. Triggers will be so much more difficult to manage if you're not sleeping Mm -hmm. properly or you're not getting enough. Mm -hmm. Um, What else? Routines. And my sister's noticed with me keeping busy. Um, I think having that balance of, knowing when you're not doing enough and when you're swamped mm-hmm. and 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 dialing it but there's a constant in my life there's a constant trying to juggle that to make sure there's some a- people mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and so that what I would say that's one um they sound kind of basic but that's because they they are just like you said holy god the essentials like without those things I would say at least having one or two people, which I know not everyone has, but maybe through organizations or, you know, I was going to meetups pre-COVID. I was going to PTSD meetups and I actually made a good friend there too. So you can find your group of people, but I would say even just one or two people. Yeah. Um, I'm really blessed with my sister. Um, she doesn't have a diagnosis or anything, but she's that person, one of the people so I would say having one or two, even if you have one or two people that you confide in, mm. it doesn't have to be all the time, mm. but knowing you have someone that you can go to if you feel really bad or you really need help or who's not going to judge you and you can just call them or message them. So I, I don't really even have to do it, but just knowing that I have that available, is, is that, that's another one I would say. Having good people around you too. Yeah. I think you've mentioned so, quite a few amazing ones there actually, because although, mm-hmm. like you said, there, there are things that we might hear all the time and they're just, well, we might not hear about them all the time because it's just a given and you think everybody's fine. But actually mm-hmm. I, I, you know, sleep is, is completely major, you know, 
um mm -hmm. I've heard a little bit about it recently from a friend of mine too and I just think um it's so essential and it's not talked about enough at all and sometimes mm -hmm. there might be even a culture of sort of I don't know staying longer at work or or, or mm -hmm. just watching a film or there's certain kind of um things that we might do and especially per perhaps when you're a bit younger you just kind of think it's okay but it's really yeah. not just generally yeah. for mental health let alone if, if you are diagnosed with something or you are going through something it's yeah. going to make it 10 times worse um, yeah. and definitely having those networks and relationships it doesn't have to be a lot of people but those mm. you know people that you can really really turn to if you have a if you if you yeah want to want to talk about something um and routines like you mentioned absolutely i yeah. there, there i'm i'm kind of reiterating reiterating <laughs> what you said because I just think it's because I, I have asked this people this question to other people before and they don't yeah. and sometimes you know self-care sounds like you just need to get in a bath or something that relaxes you <laughs> yeah. it's about the essentials and, and getting through the days and the weeks and whatever and feeling feeling like you have some energy and you have some positivity yeah. and some life in you yeah and those, yeah. those essentials, I, I do think we overlook them. We do. And even, even you know, mental health condition aside, like, so for example, I've recently started a new position, which my workload has doubled. It's been insane. And like you said about staying back longer, and yeah. I've been staying back longer, and, I've, and my work-life balance has changed. And so many people can relate to that. Yes. Or yes. with and children. You, you think it's you know it's the culture it's what you do and especially if you're in a new mm. job you want to impress etc cetera, etc cetera. but actually ultimately what's important is your mental health and and you're not burning mm -hmm. out you know i mean mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh those things are are so important and it's like being aware of them and being on top of them um yeah i, I hope i hope the things we're saying are going to be helpful to people who perhaps are, are yet to have this in the sense that they're mm -hmm. yet to have a promotion or whatever in this massive workload and so mm -hmm. when it does come about they're just aware and they don't have to go through the struggle of you know burning out or yeah you know I, I myself have experienced that in work where um it's just been too much and I haven't realized it early enough and mm -hmm. it's to the point where I don't know what's going on and um mm -hmm you know, you feel terrible about it, like you're letting people down, et cetera, et cetera. So many other mm -hmm. feelings that come along with it. But actually, if I had just been a little bit more self-aware before and, you yeah. know, sat down with a manager or whoever it might be and just say this this extra project or this whatever, um, is this um, something that we could take off my plate for a while or whatever, you know, yeah. there are so many ways, but it's just like thinking about the balance that you mentioned and and, yeah, I just, yeah, really appreciate yeah. you mentioning it because I think it's important for everybody, you know, yeah. whether whether they have a job or not, just lifestyle generally, and um, whether they're yeah. in work or not, I think it's so important to always be just thinking about how am I going to manage mm -hmm. everything that I do in my life. And um, yeah, you can't be in two, mm -hmm. you know, in two places at once. There's There's people that probably do just try and do too much. Well, is that self-aware thing that you were saying? You have to be self-aware of what's going on and pick it up and then be okay with dealing with it and coming up with a solution, whether that's a conversation with your boss or, yeah. or your partner. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is too much. Can you take the kids at this time? Or can I get a lion at this time? Or ask, like, so, I, I mean, a prime example for me is Ramadan. Like I said, I'm fasting and can we be more flexible with my working hours right. and that's what we did um i want to hear what kind of advice um would you have for others really that are going through anything mental health related mental well-being related um it's obviously a massive question because you can uh you know go on and on so um yeah maybe give us your top three or top five kind of bits of advice for for somebody that's going through mental health difficulties, whatever they might be, you know, whether it is depression or, or other, um, you know, difficulties that you face that you are obviously more, more familiar with. 
Um, so obviously, I it, it depends how immediate, you know. So if we're looking at top priorities, the first one would obviously be making sure you're safe. So if you're in a situation that's not safe, you need to, you can't heal anything. And, and that goes for, so that's very directly relevant to what my mom was going through. You know, there's women in violent relationships, abusive marriages or in family setups. And, you know, that you can't begin to address your issues if you're in, in currently still in that situation. So you need to take those immediate steps, I would say, first to be safe before you can even begin to address the, the rest. So that, that sounds pretty obvious, but it is amazing how many people try to skip that step or try to deal with their issues in yeah. that issue, you know, <laughs> and it's not gonna happen. Yeah. It can happen, it's very long-winded and it, it slows the process down and sometimes you're not, and, and physically, some women are not lucky enough to get out in time. So that's what I was, you know, or if you're, um, engaging in you know with suicidal ideation or if you feel like you're you're gonna do that or you're feeling like you're gonna do that um if you're self-harming in that way um the first thing would be to get acute help i would say you know either that services or telling someone in your family and just saying which takes a lot of guts but that's that has to be your first step so in more critical situations i would say that's your first that's your priority ringing someone um, and getting that immediate help then I would say you need a plan so like anything in life that you want to achieve whether that's getting a job whether that's getting married whether that's you know a couple trying to have a baby you have a plan and this is no different like you need a plan and so many people try to like when people want to lose weight, you know, you subscribe to a gym and you start eating different and you have like, I'm going to start this diet. And for some reason with mental health, like, I don't know why we don't do that as much. Like you need, so for me, it was very logically, I, it was a bit messy at times, but I, I, maybe that's with my educational background. You need to have a plan moving forward. So you need to reach out to a professional and, and first figure out what you're dealing with you know, whether that's a diagnosis or not, mm. and then and then have a plan. Does that include medication? Do I want to try medication? Do I have no choice, but I need medication? Some conditions you do. Um, does that include therapy for me? How often am I going to go? What kind of therapy do I need? Um, so that's, that's, that's your, you know, that's maybe a couple of steps in there, but... <laughs> But that's your next thing. You can't recover or heal or, you know, cope with your condition if you don't have the processes in place. Yeah. It's like having diabetes and, and not having the medication or doctor's appointments that go along with it. Yeah. So that would be the next one. And the other ones I would say are probably a bit more, you know, they are essential, but mm -hmm. supplementary. I would say support system, whether that's online, whether that's your friends or someone in your family or whether that includes going up to a, a group mm. or virtually you need humans are just designed that way even if it's just to be able to have one other person say to you mm. I understand that or accept you even if they don't have the same condition like I've been I've been blessed and girls with good friendships and, and they don't have what I have but just being accepted as I am or being able to just talk about it that's a, that makes a huge difference and and having good people around you and cutting out learning when to cut out the negative people around you because especially if you're dealing with a mental health issue if you're depressed and you have someone around you invalidating you or making you feel bad for it or making you feel like you're not depressed you're just lazy or you know which so many people have heard that but that's not you're not going to recover with people like that around do you think that's one of the biggest aspects to recovery is having the right people around you, whether it's few or many, you know, it might be few, yeah. it might just be a hand. Yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely. And especially the closer the relationship is. Like if it's your spouse, and I'm not, you know, I'm not advocating what people should do, but 
they're such a huge part of your life. They're there every day. If you have somebody who's invalidating you or if you're in a dangerous situation or they're not understanding how bad the situation is, you're not going to be able to to focus on your recovery. It's kind of like quicksand, right? So you're trying to get out and somebody else is kind of dragging you back in and slowing you down or it might be family or your friends. And I appreciate you can't always get rid of a, like, get rid of or cut off, shall I say, some family situations. But then it's a case of looking at where can I limit contact. And boundaries. Or draw boundaries. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think that's a huge part because with the right people, you know, you might not feel confident right now or you might have low self-esteem right now. But with the right friends, for example, telling you like you don't need to feel that way about yourself or you don't need to accept that or, or you know, no, you're not like this kind of person. You're actually a great, just having someone say, actually, you're a great person. Just, you know, accepting you and treating you how eventually that's going to rub off on you yourself, you know, and change your own self-talk. So, yeah, definitely amazing um Aisha honestly it's been such a good conversation <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed it because I've I've yeah, really thoroughly yeah. enjoyed myself um, <laughs> anything else before we sort of finish that you wanted to say that I didn't ask you or anything that you that you wanted to mention at all um no Jose you had you had really good questions like really thought provide I had to think you know um but I, I, if anything, I would just say Sakoka, and I'm so grateful that you guys have had me on there, or that you felt like you know, just to, just to ask a little old me what I thought, you know, or to share my story. But I think I'm really proud of what you guys do, and we need more of it. And so I just, you know, inshallah, Allah blesses all of you for doing what you're doing, and. Inshallah, people benefit from this. And, and I'm glad that last question, if anyone's listening to this, I think the other thing is if anybody's listening to this and they can relate, I really hope they take even one aspect of what we talked about mm. and, and get the help they need mm-hmm. or take that first step. Mm-hmm. So I think to anybody who's listening, yeah, take that first step. And like I said, it doesn't even have to be, you don't need a diagnosis. If you feel like you're struggling in any way, just take that first step and, and then go with that. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, inshallah. <laughs> and I mean for everything you said. And um, we're so grateful that you joined us and shared your story. And I hope it is okay. um, sort of, I guess, the beginning of more um, people that will want to share their stories and their experiences. And we yeah. value, you know, somebody like yourself and others hopefully down the line who will just talk, as yeah. you say. Um, mm. And I think the more, the merrier. And, uh, you know, it's not yeah. just necessarily a podcast for people that we might want, you know, a, a scholar or a teacher or, or a psychologist mm. or, or a doctor come on and speak. But actually people that have lived experience have mm-hmm. um, so much that other people can, yeah, just relate to and, 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 and gain from their experiences and, and learn. Yeah. So um, Jazakallah yeah. for joining me. It's been wonderful to meet you and inshallah we will yeah conclude there thank you so much thank Take you care. Alaikum. everyone i hope you enjoyed this episode of the mindful muslim podcast with aisha khalil and that you found this a beneficial conversation inshallah i will see you on the next one